In Pursuit of Plants. Welcome to our latest episode of In Pursuit of Plants. My name is Gemma, and today I am joined by the wonderful Linnea Kuglish. Happy to be here with the magnificent Gemma. So today I'm going to be talking about a joint project with Linnea here, about a project that we've been kind of conducting ourselves. So basically, just to kind of recap a little bit on our kind of fields of expertise, uh, I don't know if, how many of you kind of have listened to our very first podcast episode where I kind of describe what I do, but just to kind of briefly recap. I am a historian of pharmacy. I look predominantly at the 20th century. So I look at the place of medicinal plants within conventional or orthodox pharmacy, so completely ignoring kind of alternative medicine here. I'm looking at the place of medicinal plants following the rise of synthetic drugs, the introduction of the NHS, etc. And looking at how plants kind of fit into this kind of early 20th century kind of therapeutic landscape. And Linnea, do you want to describe your area? Of course. So my name is Linnea, as Gemma elegantly introduced me. And I am an archaeologist by training. I focus on the historical period uh, and conduct essentially document-aided archaeology. So what that means is you look at the material record to examine the kind of lived experience of people in the past and use the lovely documents that uh, Gemma's mentioned to do it. Uh, And my focus has been essentially medical treatment in the 19th and early 20th century, specifically in institutional contexts. So locations like hospitals, and in this case, universities. Uh, And as you can imagine, that involves a lot of medical glassware. So our research is really a match made in heaven. The project that we've been working on has really been merging my interest in medicinal plants, and Linnea's kind of archaeological perspective, as we both have kind of really started doing some in-depth studies, really, in the Manchester Museum's Materia Medica collection. Developing an unnatural obsession with bottles. Yes, we do have a very unnatural obsession with glass jars. Yay, glass jars! (laughs) Yay! (laughs) So the Manchester Museum's Materia Medica collection dates back to predominantly the 19th century. This was a teaching collection from the... Originally, the kind of School of Pharmacy at the University of Manchester, although at the time it was kind of used, it was either called Owens College, the Victoria University, when Owens College was in a federal system with Leeds, with colleges from Leeds and Liverpool, um, and that was from 1880 onwards, and then also the Victoria University of Manchester, which is from the beginning of the 20th century. So the kind of collection itself is predominantly within these institutions, and then eventually it was kind of donated to the Manchester Museum. Materia Medica basically means a pharmacy collection. So it refers to plants, animals, minerals, etc. that were used to make drugs. For example, in the form of tinctures, so mixed with alcohol, or kind of compounded using these kind of raw materials. For example, you have laudanum, which is a mixture of Parva somniferum, also known as the opium poppy with alcohol, and that was basically basically used for the same things as morphine because morphine comes from the opium poppy. Uh, so you have many kind of drugs like this that come from the Materia Medica collection. You can also get alkaloids, which basically compounds isolated from plants as well. And that kind of comes into play in the 19th and 20th centuries. But I will talk about that a little bit later. So kind of returning to the collection itself for a little bit, uh, the collection was 
as I said, used as a teaching tool, so it was used by students as well as staff to kind of both familiarise themselves with the plants, but also to practice compounding with these drugs. The collection in the Manchester Museums, what they eventually inherited, contains over 840 glass jars of Materia Medica specimens, as well as box specimens, although as part of our study we haven't really been looking at those. Part of the Materia Medica collection also ended up at the School of Pharmacy, which is currently um, part of the University of Manchester, and they have, I guess, around another 100 or so jars over there. So it's quite a big, substantial collection containing glassware. The problem I had when I was doing all this research, and I have been researching this collection for a while now, I've been doing it since my undergraduate degree, was that there's very little archival documentation that has survived relating to the use of this collection, for example, in the 19th century or even the 20th century, and even there's very little documentation as to when specimens were collected or anything like that. So this is where Linnea comes into the story, uh, because basically we decided that we'd approach the glassware instead. So the glassware that you're familiar with, the sort of glassware you'd encounter in your local grocers, is quite different from early glassware. The earliest evidence we have of glassmaking dates to around uh, 3500 BC in Mesopotamia and Egypt, that kind of general region. There's evidence that, well, so you can essentially divide glass manufacture up into two periods. You have uh, essentially mouth-blown glassware and machine-manufactured glassware. And I, for the moment, I think we're going to focus on mouth-blown. Around, I think it was 300 or 500 BC, the blowpipe was introduced to glass manufacture. And what that essentially means is if you've ever seen someone uh, blowing artsy glass at say, a uh, makerspace or something along those lines. What happens is you have the gaffer or the person who is manufacturing the vessel or bottle. He will, or they will be in possession of a blowpipe, essentially. They'll insert one end of it into a sort of bubble of molten glass in a furnace. Uh, that bubble of glass, which is known as a parison, so the parison is removed from the sort of larger bubble of molten glass. It's shaped by hand using various tools, and the person who is on the other end of the blowpipe essentially exhales into the pipe, inflating the bottle, and that continues to be shaped with tools until it's ultimately removed. And that process uh, produces a very unique-looking bottle, and Gemma has seen a few of these, they have very asymmetrical profiles, lots of bumps, lots of uh, unusual shapes. And that process, like a number of later processes, it leaves its mark, as I think we'll speak about a little bit more as we go on. Yeah, so basically what we kind of did with this project is that we decided to try and date the glass jars themselves. So the plants inside the glass jars would have been continually used and replaced as students were kind of examining them to kind of familiarise themselves or turning them into drugs etc. But so the contents would have been continually used. However the glass jars became an ideal way to try and date when the specimens were first added to the collection because the jars themselves would have kind of remained the same consistently. Unless there were naughty students smashing them. Yeah, unless there were naughty students, which uh, adds a layer of complication. So we can, it becomes the first time that particular jar was added 
there probably were earlier ones, but we are kind of stuck in the fact that they don't exist anymore. <laughs> so kind of <laughs> stuck with what we've got. Basically what we've been doing is trying to date when they're first added to the collection and from this we will kind of get an idea of whether or not any kind of jars or specimens of plants were added to the Materia Medica collection in the 20th century, so after synthetic drugs kind of really took off. Also be kind of getting an idea of if there was like a period in time when you got a lot of the same plant fruit coming through. For example, uh, cinchona, which is the source of the drug quinine. Quinine was used to treat malaria. It's also the thing that's found in tonic water. Delicious. So, yeah, anyone who's a fan of gin and tonic will probably know quinine. Um, also, it's worth kind of just checking out Kim's work relating to this because she's basically doing an entire PhD on quinine. But anyway, back to my original point. Um, it could be that, say, that there was a lot of interest in studying it in the kind of 19th century, late 19th century. It could be that there was like a bulk edition of these jars around that time. So by kind of tracking when the jars were added, we can kind of get an idea of when they start to be adding to the kind of course. Obviously, again, this would be taken with a little bit of a pinch of salt because as Linnea said, jars would have been smashed, kind of used and things like that. And maybe just wear and tear generally, so probably might be replaced. So this kind of gives us an idea of things, but we can't take it as kind of the absolute golden truth of this is when this jar was added. Yeah. It does tell us a lot about the kind of extended management of the collection too, though. So people were using the jars and potentially smashing them in the later period, as I think we'll discuss a little bit here. Yeah, so basically how we're going to do this kind of podcast episode, uh, first we're going to focus on the 19th century part of the collection. So I'm going to talk a bit about the history of the collection, it's where it kind of came from and things like that. This will be then followed by Linnea, who'll talk a little bit about how we kind of approach dating these jars, the techniques that came out in the 19th century. Uh, from there, we'll kind of move on then to the 20th century, and I'll start talking a little bit about basically kind of changes going on within the 20th century, and Linnea again will bring in some more knowledge about the glass manufacturing techniques that came in the 20th century, that have enabled us to date certain specimens to being 20th century collections, which I find fascinating because it's a period when people tend to go, oh, plants, they use less and less, people don't care about the collections in the 20th century. Um, obviously that is not entirely serious, but like the, the kind of idea that these kind of specimens tend to be used less and less in the 20th century, we'll hopefully be able to go, actually, this collection was used until such and such a point. Look at our bottles. Look at our bottles. They tell us stories. <laughs> uh, and finally, we'll end a little bit on uh, public engagement, because this collection that we've been doing, the entire project, has actually been a public engagement project that we've kind of got members of the public in to help us with the dating approaches. But that is a thing for the end. So we can make a start with the 19th century and the collection itself. So as I said already, the collection was a teaching collection. It has its kind of origins with kind of Owens College. So Owens College was an institution in Manchester which was set up in 1851 and basically they provided a university style education at the time that they could actually grant degrees. So you had to go elsewhere to get your degree but basically from the outset they were providing university style education. However they didn't actually originally have a medical school they didn't acquire a medical school until 1872 when they merged with the Royal Manchester School of Medicine and Surgery. So this is kind of where you first get mentions of the Materia Medica in the kind of archive and these are 
very, very vague, shall we say, at this point, because the only real reference to the collection in its kind of original form with the Royal Manchester School of Medicine and Surgery is this kind of off-handed mention in obituaries of a man called Daniel John Leach, who I will get to in a second. But basically they kind of talk about how great the collection had come from its kind of humble origins. So they kind of, in the kind of obituaries, have statements going that the collection, when it was inherited from the Royal Manchester School of Medicine and Surgery, only had three jars. I personally think this is a complete and utter exaggeration to kind of go, look how great it is at the end of the 19th century. But it is kind of this idea that at the very beginning, it was always seen as being quite a small collection that Daniel John Leach added to. So Daniel John Leach, I keep saying the name, but who was he? <laughs> Will Leach do it? <laughs> so uh, Daniel John Leach was the Professor of Materia Medica and Pharmacy at Owens College. Uh, he was originally a co-lecturer from 1872, so when the kind of Royal Manchester School of Medicine and Surgery merged with Owens College to become their medical school. And then from 1874, he became professor and this is when we saw a massive increase in the materia medica because Daniel John Leach really felt that what the school of pharmacy needed for a practical teaching of materia medica was a big stock of materia medica specimens so he kind of put together a materia medica museum so the kind of original medical school at the university of manchester actually had its own dedicated kind of museum space just for materia medica specimens so it kind of goes to show how important the collection was because you have obviously the kind of anatomy museum you have the general medical museum but there wasn't many collections that had their own dedicated museum space like the materia medica collection did so it's kind of very actively added to and they were engaging with the materials in this museum space right yeah so the collection in kind of daniel john leach's time it was used in the teaching of his courses he made special note that the students were allowed to come and use it outside of the teaching space as well. So the idea was that he'd kind of take them into the lecture spaces, into the laboratory spaces and kind of teach there. But then also that the museum was open to the medical students so that they could go in in their own time to familiarise themselves with the drugs because part of what they had to do was be able to identify um, certain plants and go, oh, this is an adulted form and stuff like that. So they kind of had to go and really know the drugs quite well. So it was, the collection was used as in the actual teaching, but also for the students to kind of go to in their own time. And actually this idea of a laboratory, kind of just to pause a little bit on the collection and do a little segue. Um, the laboratory actually has a quite interesting point mm. in relation to medicinal plants. Uh, so in the 1870s, give or take, you start having the introduction of the laboratory into kind of pharmacy at the time. And this had a massive impact on medicinal plants. So now that they started with having the laboratory, they were able to extract active components of plants. So the kind of compounds in the plants that gave them their medicinal properties. For example, from belladonna or deadly nightshade, you got atropine. From opium, as I kind of mentioned before, you got morphine and things like that. So you start being able to have these kind of alkaloids as well as your kind of plant-based drugs. And also in the 19th century, you also had the beginnings of the synthetic drugs kind of emerging, which kind of really took off from roughly the middle of the 19th century. It kind of, it didn't become quite as big and as significant until the 20th century, but you start having the beginnings of synthetics coming out. And that was predominantly 
due to the dye industry. So with the dyeing clothes, you had the synthetic dyes were introduced and these were then discovered to have, oh, they have medicinal properties or we can apply it to medicine, stuff like that. So you start having the first kind of synthetic drugs, but that was very much tied with the dye industry. Medicine and manufacture. Yeah, it's all so integrated and linked. Um, but yeah, that was kind of a slight tangent there, but it does kind of come into play a little bit later. But it's kind of, yeah, again, a slight, slight tangent. So to go back to the collection itself, uh, the material medical collection, as I said, throughout the 19th century was being actively added to. So this is where you kind of see the bulk of the collection being kind of expanded, shall we say. And if you look on our website, www.inpursuitofplants.com, we have corresponding blog posts for everything. So for what I'm talking about, I'll add images and stuff like that. So you can check out some of the glassware and things that we're talking about and able to see the collection. And the reason I bring this up is because the collection, um, you started having the early ways to date some of the jars. So some of them were using just the glassware, but some of them were very lucky in that the labels told us what institution they were affiliated with. So for some of them, they said Owens College. So we knew that they were from 1872 to 1880. Some said Victoria University. So in 1880, uh, Victoria University was kind of created as a federal university so that Owens College could finally give degrees, though only within this federal system. But basically anything with that we could date from 1880 to 1903. And then from 1903 onwards the kind of federal system fell apart and Owens College became an independent university known as Victoria University of Manchester. So anything that said University of Manchester we could date till after this period. Obviously anything with University of Manchester, we would think today is the University of Manchester as we know today. Actually, the univer that university didn't exist until 2004, with a merger of the Victoria University of Manchester with the University of Manchester Institute for Science and Technology, or UMIST. So the collection by that point had already gone to the Manchester Museum. Uh, so anything that said University of Manchester on the labels, we were attributing to the Victoria University of Manchester, which helped a little bit in our dating. However... These jars are very few and far between. Most of them were just kind of saying what was in the jars and didn't actually say what kind of affiliation they had, which made it quite difficult to really kind of date the jars themselves, which is where Lilia came in with some of the 19th century techniques. Indeed. So around the beginning of the uh, 19th century, there were a number of technological and manufacturing advances in the making of glassware. As I mentioned before, the vast majority of bottles uh, up until this point were blown by mouth, and the 19th century also had a number of mouth-blown bottles. These remained in use well into the 20th century uh, functionally, because if you think about it, it takes a lot of work to put together a uh, kitted-out factory that is able to make more sophisticated bottles, so it was much cheaper to just make mouth-blown bottles. But around 1810, I believe, you start to see the use of molds. So mold-blown bottles are blown by mouth. The sort of additional technological features that you see is basically you introduce a multi-part mold. So you have a heated blob of glass off the end of your blowpipe as the gaffer. Um, and once you start to inflate that, what you do is you essentially pop that into a little, I mean, it looks like a panini press, really, <laughs> with a, a little hollowed out section. Um, and that will give the bottle its sort of overall shape as it's inflated. 
Uh, and these molds produce some really interesting features on the bottles themselves once they've cooled down, and that's something that you can actually check out on just about any bottle you see, really. But one of the most prominent features, and I don't know about you, Gemma, one that always strikes me is the mold seams themselves. So if you think about a, say, a two-part mold closing around a bottle, you have seams that kind of like run around the body of the bottle. And those typically filled up with molten glass. So take a look at a glass bottle in your kitchen. Uh, you'll see two very subtle kind of raised lines typically running up uh, the sides of the bottle. And different types of molds were used with different bottles. There were also uh, changes in how bottles were finished. The introduction of tool finishes was a feature of 19th century manufacture. So in that case, you basically had a sort of tool that would come around the finish of the bottle, the bit that you drink from, and pinch the glass that would be rotated around. And that would create a relatively uniform finish on the bottle itself. And on the bases of these bottles, uh, you would often encounter a uh, mark that is a part of manipulating these bottles. So that is known as the pontil mark. So you'd take a heated rod or a rod coated in a different substance to help it adhere to the bottle base and essentially manipulate the bottle while you go about doing the sort of finish of the bottle or, in some cases, polishing away the glorious, helpful lines that we like to use to date the bottles. I guess one of the big problems with the counterfeits collection, isn't it, that so many of them are this kind of really nice, pristine kind of showcase kind of specimen jar, but they, that they've kind of gone around and kind of turn molded them and kind of polished off the seam marks, which means, though that they did exist, we then have to kind of really look for certain indications to actually the seam exist because they've kind of got rid of the seam itself, that indications of, oh, was there a seam there? Um, Absolutely, and that's a big problem with specialist kind of glassware. So pharmaceutical glassware, uh, and particularly display glassware, as you're pointing out here, tends to be very high class, and not a lot of these vessels were actually needed in use, so there was no point in mechanizing their production, because, I mean, if you think about drink bottles, beer bottles in the 19th century, you're going to need large numbers of those. They're used by everyone. But where it comes to displaying your uh, Ipecacuana, you don't uh, necessarily need 50,000 jars scattered around your city. They're just concentrated in centers like Owens College. Yeah, or the Victoria University or, of Manchester. Or the Victoria <laughs> University of Manchester. Um, yeah, so you mentioned Ipecac. Uh, you could use it for inducing vomiting or treating accidental poisoning for anyone who's interested in the plant itself. So I think that's enough on the 19th century. Then we get on to the 20th century. So the 20th century is often kind of presented as a time when synthetics are taken off, you have the rise of pharmaceuticals kind of dominating the market, you have alkaloids so now you can use morphine instead of having to use opium and things like that. So it's kind of generally presented that knowing the plants themselves become less important. And collections like the Materia Medica collection at the Manchester Museum, there's also collections across the country, Cardiff have a fantastic collection, Kew have a brilliant collection as well, but these are all kind of collections that stopped being used throughout the 20th century and Manchester Museum's was no exception. The interesting thing though is that 
the archive kind of implies something that's very different to reality. So when you get to the 20th century and looking at archival kind of documentation to the collection, the use of the material medica collection for teaching stops being mentioned for starters, but we know the collection has still been added to until at least the 1930s because the archive just says additions to the materia medica, which is so vague, but we know that it was still been added to. And because it's been added to, that means obviously people must have been using it. The, the last reference I have to the, found to the Materia Medica was in 1948, where it basically was an offhanded comment saying that the Materia Medica Museum, a small portion was going to be taken over to make space for some laboratory kind of equipment and some dispensing equipment, implying that the museum still existed, but there was no documentation relating to it from the 1930s onwards. So it's kind of beyond that one reference, it's just like, what happened to the museum? Did it exist? What was it being used for? Um, and was it still being used for teaching? Was it still being added to? So this is where kind of looking at the collection itself becomes quite important because by dating the jars, we can kind of get an idea of at least not maybe the very end day, but we can at least kind of get an idea as to how long it was continually being added to. And through our research, we've actually shown it still was, wasn't it? Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, do you want to talk a little bit about some of the glass techniques that we've used to d identify 20th century jars? Indeed, indeed. So we were lucky enough to stumble upon a couple of gorgeous and very representative 20th century jars. And so in the early 20th century, bottle manufacturing shifted somewhat. The semi-automatic and the automatic bottle machines were introduced. So in semi-automatic bottle machine, Essentially, a large part of the manufacturing process, which had previously been completed by hand or just with the assistance of a human being who was inserting the molten glass into a mold, became the remit of a machine. So with the semi-automatic bottle machine, you essentially had a slightly less skilled worker injecting molten glass into a mold. And... In these cases, the bottle was inflated using machine-based air pressure rather than the breath of the blower themselves. So that's the major distinction between hand or mouth blown bottles and machine-made bottles. Slightly after that point, this process was more fully automated. So with the semi-automatic machine, the worker would have to physically move the molten glass between the uh, basically pot and the Paracin mold. After this automatic machine was introduced, that entirely fell to the machine, and you just needed a worker to make sure that, you know, nothing blew up, basically, besides the bottles. <laughs> um, and this process left, again, some very distinctive marks, as I think we've seen on our own bottles. Uh, so with the automatic bottle machine in particular, um, you see those seams that I mentioned earlier that... Uh, relate to the sort of mold that was used to give a shape to the bottle, you see those extend all the way up through the finish of the bottle, which is the kind of ring around the part that you drink from. In addition, you tend to get some very interesting marks around the base of the bottle, specifically with Owens-type machines, which it's really just a brand name, the Owens machine but it used a Parison mold, essentially, that left a really distinctive ring around the base, well, on the base of the bottle. Yeah, and from this we've kind of applied this to jars in the Materia Medica collection of the Manchester Museum, as I said, kind of 
dating back to the kind of we've already kind of established the 19th century stuff but we've managed to date stuff in the 20th century so there's a whole bunch that we've kind of distinctly managed to identify as definitely 20th century and even we've identified some that have been post-1945 which means that they were added to after the archive stopped and at a time when kind of synthetic drugs were a lot bigger by this time kind of prescriptions and kind of pharmaceutical drugs yet the actual plant themselves was still being used in teaching and added to after 1945 and the Second World War, which is when it kind of really took off with synthetics, which is really interesting yeah. kind of historically when used for that. The particularly interesting ones in the material medical collection that are predominantly 20th century are actually the kind of screw cap ones. Yes. Um, do you want to talk a bit about threading? Or? Absolutely. Threading and caps actually would be a good uh, one there. So... I think most of us are familiar with uh, a couple of distinctive types of bottle finishes. In the 19th century, there were a lot more going. I won't go into too much depth about those, but there are a lot of innovations of the 20th century where it comes to the closures of the bottles themselves. So, for example, threaded finishes, um, sort of screw top finishes, like the sort of thing you'd see nowadays on a plastic peanut butter jar, were very much a 20th century phenomena. Yeah, so from the kind of identifying of the screw cap ones, there's been some that we've been going, oh, this is definitely 20th century. And there have actually been surprisingly more screw cap ones than I was initially expecting with the collection. There's actually quite a few of them. Absolutely, which I think, as you've pointed out, is really good evidence that the materials were being, I don't know, acquired and stored in mass, and maybe they weren't all living in the beautiful specialist uh, glassware that would have stacked the gorgeous cabinets in the uh, Materia Medica Museum. Yeah, and it's really interesting when you're kind of looking at the 20th century and this idea that it was an era of kind of synthetic drugs, of kind of active principles, so the alkaloids of plants rather than necessarily the plants themselves, kind of going back to kind of opium and morphine but this actually wasn't necessarily the case for example I've done an entire chapter of my PhD looking at belladonna which is also known as deadly nightshade um, and I've been looking at how this plant continued to be within the kind of drug markets as late as the 1960s my research ended in 1960 just to put that so even in the 1960s the plant itself was still being kind of really common in the drug markets even after active principles in the form of alkaloids already been readily available but belladonna the plant itself was still being used and this is also a time when kind of synthetics had taken off so there was already lots of research into making atropine etc in synthetic form but the plant itself still had quite a significant place within the drug market so the plants just because you had the rise synthetics and the kind of idea of alkalis didn't necessarily mean that the plants themselves didn't still have a place. Yeah, so the very fact that these plants were still in the kind of the drug markets or being used in medicine goes through that it was, was still being trained within education. So the context of materia medica collections, things like the plants were still actually important. It wasn't just that, oh, you go to the 20th century and suddenly it's like, oh, look, laboratory medicine, it's all about synthetics, it's all about alkaloids, it's all about those sort of things. Actually, kind of galenical knowledge or this idea of kind of crude plant-based drugs remained really important at least through like the first half of the 20th century obviously this is all within specifically the British context you kind of 
get very different stories if you look at say the United States um, or kind of I don't know rest of Europe like it, the place of medicinal plants kind of varied um, in country to country um, which is again part of my PhD thesis which I'm not really going to talk about here because we're actually looking at the collection um, but yeah the 20th century also had some interesting additions that were only really kind of at its height, shall we say, in the 20th century. Mm. For example, um, and we'll include this in the corresponding blog post, turtle oil. So turtle oil was a 20th century edition. It was basically used in pretty much most skincare and skin creams and things like that in the 1930s. Basically, the idea kind of stemmed from this idea of, oh, turtles, they live a long time. (laughs) We put it on our face. Well, our skin will look really... Obviously, completely not not the case at all, and just like the idea of mashing up turtles and kind of, kind of boiling them away to put in skin creams is horrific. If it's an animal, we can make an oil out of it. Yeah, it's an extremely grim-looking jar as well. As I said, on the blog post, we'll include it, and you can see a picture of how grim this stuff looks. We can have a highlights <laughs> of gross jars. Gross jars. But yeah, so that was definitely 20th century, and it was still kind of used and probably added to the collection in the 20th century when this really took off as kind of I'm going to go with fad because it kind of it lasted quite a while actually it kind of continued mm, petered off around the 1950s 1960s and basically gone with the animal welfare conservation yeah don't don't put turtles in face cream guys this is not advocated for it by the way (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah but basically that these are all kind of definitely 20th century so when we look at the jazz we go oh this really took from the 20th century and stuff like that so you can kind of really see how the idea that these kind of crude drugs or these kind of raw materials of plant and animal origin were still within the 20th century it's not just a thing of the past of the 19th century of oh hit the 20th century and suddenly they all disappeared no one cares anymore that yeah. wasn't the case. And this obviously had an impact on the Materia Medica collection. So the problem when you get to the 20th century is that the Materia Medica, as I said, the archives end, so we don't actually know when the collection stopped being used and moved to the Manchester Museum. And it's still something we're not 100% sure on. Yeah. We know, obviously, the collection was still actively added to and were proven in 1945, or post-1945 even. Um, so the collection at least for the thoroughly the first half of the 20th century, was still in use and still existed. And then at some point it ended up... <laughs> probably when they moved buildings, to be perfectly honest, is my guess as to when the collection stopped having its own museum was probably when they kind of moved from the old medical school to the new medical school building called the Stockford Building at the University of Manchester. Which when was, was that? 1970s. But... I have no proof. This is all just conjecture on my part. Going, oh, this is the likely time it moved. Hypotheses. My hypothesis, which is not remotely supported by any evidence whatsoever. Not yet. Not yet. Beyond the fact that I knew the collection obviously outlasted 1945 and go, oh, I have no archives. So it's somewhere within that period. Just in. you wait. We'll find like a bottle of like tang or yeah. something in the collection <laughs> full of turtle oil. Yeah, because it's kind of when you look at the accession records of the Manchester Museum for the Material Medical Collection, it's kind of unhelpful because it was acquired and then retroactively accessioned in mm. the 1990s, which means that I was like, when I first started looking at the collection, before we'd ever done this research, I was like, 
so they're reading stuff going, so this collection was used in the 19th century and at any point in the following hundred years it went to the Manchester <laughs> Museum. So they sort of narrowed it down from like, oh, it had to be after 1945 at the very earliest. That date range, though. <laughs> Getting steadily smaller. Maybe one day I'll find like this random piece of paper that'll say, oh, it was then. But sadly, that is not currently the case. So basically, I think it might be quite nice to just end on a little bit about the project we're doing in the fact it's public engagement so as we kind of began this we've been saying we've done all this research and looking at the 19th century looking at the 20th century and trying to date all the jars we decided it's way too much work for two people it's a lot of jars and a lot of data yeah but so we had this massive massive spreadsheet that we created with all the information we want to collect for each jar and kind of sat there going well we have 840-odd jars at the Manchester Museum. We've gotten through about 50. Yeah, we're we're getting there, guys. We're getting there. (laughs) But yes, it's like this really, really big collection. And that's not even including all the jars in the School of Pharmacy as well. So it's like, there is no way we're going to do this all on our own. A mammoth task. Yeah, so we decided to do, in all good ways, Citizen Science Project. Yes. Uh, Basically, we opened it up to the public and we've been in two days with four sessions. So we we did a morning and afternoon session on two consecutive days. We're kind of opening it up and we're going to do more and more longer day sessions. Are basically getting people in to come and help us date the jars. They get to have hands-on playing with jars and also dating them. Absolutely. And, you know, people love jars. Why don't (laughs) you want to learn how old your jars are? (laughs) But yeah, so when we kind of made it a citizen science project, so getting through jars faster than we would have, because we've got, now got a team of people who kind of come in and can often can come in on the days we organise it to have a go and have a have a play and have a go at dating. And but we get them to record all the information so that we can kind of go back and double check the dates. But basically, yeah, it's been interesting because we've got all these people coming who aren't necessarily knowledgeable on drugs or plants or anything like that I probably don't know anything about glass jars and we have to basically teach people from scratch which it's quite a challenge yeah there's a lot to learn especially when you're combining our two respective fields and added to that so many jars as we said before they had the kind of polished effect to them and kind of means that the seams disappears it's like trying to get people to look at them absolutely uh and yeah we've talked a bit about uh specialized glassware and how those are those sorts of vessels are typically a little bit difficult. If anybody has any cool 19th century uh, glass manufacturer catalogs that they know of that we might have missed, let us know. Uh, But the materials we're working with aren't traditional bottles. Yeah, especially because it's, as you say, kind of very specialized. Lots of them like kind of specimen jars are kind of straight, kind of not really looking like bottles, but still glassware. Yeah, we've divided our bottles up into different categories, haven't we? So we have uh, the sort of bottles you'd imagine running into in, again, your greengrocers, and then shelfware, which are essentially... um, The specimen jars, really, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Mm. But with the kind of public engagement side of it, of bringing in the public to look at it, it's meant that we've had to really think about how... To kind of go about explaining how to date and how to kind of 
also how to like handle we had lots of comments kind of how to show people conservation of how to hold things don't lick the bottles don't lick the bottles that is always a good rule of thumb <laughs> just generally old specimens don't lick them um, <laughs> you're yeah, gonna so get it's... some protests from archaeologists Gemma I'm just saying <laughs> but basically yes it's been quite interesting to try and do as a citizen science project if anyone wants to do get involved, by the way, we are still running these sessions periodically. So if you keep an eye on the Manchester Museum website as to their events page, we will be running more if anyone wants to come and actually play with some jars and see the collection firsthand. Um, I sadly might call it quits there because I don't think That's we have time to really go into great detail about kind of the public engagement side of it beyond to mention that we do it. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of In Pursuit of Plants. If you would like to read our corresponding blog post, which contains images of the collection, as well as more information, please check out our website, www.inpursuitofplants.co.uk. You can also follow us on Twitter, at ipop underscore podcast. Our next interview will be conducted by Kim, so please do check that out. Uh, Apart from that, thank you for listening.